going to dismiss the youth. Youth, you are dismissed. You guys ready to get in the Word this morning? You know, uh, I usually do series, right? But the last three weeks I've been doing standalone messages, and I'm going to continue that this morning. And uh, I, like I've said, I'm, eventually we're going to get into some uh, end-time stuff like Jesus' Olivet Discourse. We're going to be looking at the book of Revelation some this year. And we will get to that soon enough. But I just want to, to fill our hearts and ground our hearts with just some fundamental, foundational truths uh, of the Christian life. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit. You know, what the Spirit-controlled life looks like. Right? Paul says that there are nine fruits, or there are nine characteristics of a spirit-controlled life. And he writes about them in his letter to the Galatians. Now in Galatians, Paul is having to deal with some teachers who had infiltrated the church that he had just planted in the region of Galatia, which was a Roman territory. Today it's in modern eastern Turkey, right? But soon after he evangelized, and this is one of the first people groups he evangelized in the book of Acts. It was on his first missionary journey. And after he came back to Antioch, you know, in Syria, we're told that he got word about a lot of conflict that was going on there. And so there were a bunch of teachers who were coming and infiltrated the new Christian community there, and they were stirring up a lot of strife, right? They're telling all the new Gentile men converts there, they're saying, Hey, come over to the tent here. We need to do a little circumcision on you, right? If you're really going to be part of the people of God, uh, you need to be under a lot of all of these Mosaic laws if you're really going to be part of the people of God. And when, when Paul got word of this, when he got wind of what was happening in that community he had just established and founded, he was very upset, right? And so he writes his first letter that we have in the Bible, called Galatians, and I tell you what, it's one of his most passionate letters, right? He, he gives a strong word about how the Christian does not need to be circumcised, is not under the law of Moses, right? But they are freed in Christ Jesus. They're freed from the yoke of the law. But then he wants people to understand, you know, of course, that their freedom is, is just not a freedom to live then according to the ways of the world, but it's a freedom to live in the new life they've been gifted by the Spirit of God. So, you know, his whole theme in the book of Galatians, it, it really is building off of the message that he first preached to the Galatians on his first missionary journey. And this is part of that message when he was there. In Acts 13, 38, this is what he says to the Galatians. He says, therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man, he's talking about Jesus, who God raised from the dead, through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified, or they're made right with God. Everyone who believes is made right with God from all the things with which you could not be justified by the law of God of Moses, right? Now, he's speaking to 
the Jewish leaders as he did in every place he went in and evangelized first, right? He, he went to the Jews first, he went to the synagogues, and he preached to them the good news of what God had done in Jesus Christ, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And what it meant now in terms of what God was doing in the world, not just with Jews, but with everybody. And then how God's purposes through the law of Moses, how now it pertained to the life of not just Jews, but also Gentiles. Well, you know, Paul, he really develops these thoughts that he preached to them on that first missionary journey. He develops them in his letter to the Galatians. And in the first four chapters, he really develops six biblical and theological points about why Christians, you know, didn't need to be circumcised, why they didn't need to keep all of the letter of the law of Moses to be saved. It was a defense of the gospel of grace that he preached. And, you know, what we're going to look at tonight is how he follows up the defense of that gospel of grace. And we're going to see that in Galatians chapter 5, what it means to be free in Christ. Paul says that we're not free in Christ so that we can just indulge our flesh, that we can live selfishly. Rather, we're free in Christ so we can be offered to the spirit of life and we can reign in that life. Through the abundance of his grace, through the gift of his righteousness, we can reign in life that truly is life, the abundant life that he wants to offer us. And so to be free from the law doesn't mean then to be a slave to our sinful passions. To be free from the law means to be alive in the life that the Spirit of God so freely gives to us. And so what Paul goes on to really say in Galatians 5 is that the gospel of grace that I just laid out to you for four chapters, it is something that makes gracious people. Aren't you glad that God's grace can make us gracious? And I tell you what, that is something that we need to hear over and over and over again, because I tell you what, the battle of the, the, the Christian life, it's a battle, right? There is a tug of war between the flesh and the desires of the flesh and the spirit and the life of the spirit. And we got to constantly remind and say, no, I know who I am in Christ Jesus. I'm putting off the old man. I'm putting on the new man. I'm reminding myself that I'm a child of God, that I'm filled with the Spirit, that I have a new kind of life that's controlling me, and I'm going to see the fruit of that life in my life. Amen? So this is what he says in Galatians 5.13, kind of beginning what the new life of the Christian looks like. He says this, he says, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Through love serve one another. You know, um, according to Scripture, freedom is not how we think of freedom in 21st century America. When we think of freedom in 21st century America, I think most people think of autonomy, right? that I do whatever I want. We're the land of the free, right? And that's what it means to be free. Just do whatever I want. I can, you know, live for myself. But in biblical terms, that kind of autonomy where I just do whatever I want, that's just another form of slavery, okay? The freedom that the Bible talks about is about being 
yoked to Jesus. It's about being led by the Holy Spirit. For that's how we were always created to live. And that's the only way we will ever flourish and ever be truly free is if we're in step with the one who created us, right? Freedom in the Bible is dependent on the one who made you, right? It's kind of like someone who, who makes a car, manufactures it, designs it. They're the one who knows how that car functions and works best, right? And, and, and they know exactly when the best to get the oil changed, to change out the tires, to do everything right. Well, it's the same way with God. God knows how our lives function best. He's the one who designed it. So we're only going to be free. We're only going to be operating in the way that's glorious is if we're operating in, in line with the way that the, desire, uh, the designer wants us to operate, and that's filled with his own life, right? It's by being filled with the Spirit. You know, in verse 13, um, the, uh, some translations, it, it talks about, um, you know, it uses the phrase, don't indulge the flesh. Don't indulge the flesh. But rather serve one another through love. Uh, the New King James that we read, it says, there's the opportunity for the flesh. Other translations translate that word there that's indulge or an opportunity for the flesh as a military base of operations. That's really the, the background of that Greek word there. Don't allow the flesh, you know, be a military base of operation in your life. So one of the top scholars on Galatians in the last generation is a guy by the name of J. Lewis Martin. And he, this is how he translates this verse. I want to read it to you. He says this, Do not allow freedom to be turned into a military base of operations for the flesh. Okay? Active as a cosmic power. That's why he capitalizes flesh here. It's, it's, it's like uh, this big controlling mess in our life, and it just, it, it, it's what wants to have authority over you. On the contrary, through love, be genuine servants of one another. So we are all controlled by something, right? The, the modern concept of freedom and the sense of having full control over the self, it's an illusion. We are always under the influence of something or of someone. We're either under the influence of the flesh or the spirit. We're either under the influence of the law or of Christ. We have been freed from the yoke of the law, not so then we can indulge the flesh, that would be bondage. Rather, we have been freed from the yoke of the law so we can be yoked to Jesus Christ. And in fact, this is how all of the writers of the New Testament identify in the beginning of their letters. They identify as someone who has been yoked to Jesus Christ, who has been bought at a price, and who is no longer their own. Paul, in about half of his letters, he opens them saying, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. John, in Revelation, he opens it by saying he's a bondservant of Jesus Christ. James opens his letter, James, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Jude opens his letter, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Uh, who, who else? Uh, Peter. Peter as well, in one of his two letters, opens it as Peter, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Well, 
they, they understood, right, that the idea of a bondservant was someone who was willingly giving their life over to a master who, who had been a good master to them. So this is, in fact, when God gave the law, the first part of the law he gave was called the law of the covenant. So right after Moses came down from Sinai in Exodus 20, he reads the law of the covenant to the people, which is Exodus 21 through 23. And right at the beginning of the law of the covenant, he gives an understanding of what a bondservant is, that all the apostles testified they were of Jesus Christ. This is what it says about the bondservant in Exodus 21, verse 5. He says, if the servant, after they've you know, served out their uh, really indentured servanthood for seven years, paying off a debt. If, if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife and my children, I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to the judges, he shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an owl, and he shall serve him forever. So what is this? The servant is saying, I know my life will be infinitely better if I remain with my master because my master is a good master who loves me. So instead of trying to live an independent on my life and in the grind of the world, I'm going to go and give my life eternally to this master or for the, the rest of my life, I'm going to give it to my master. So when all of the apostles are saying, I have been freed by Christ, right? I am no longer bondage. I am no longer a slave. I have been, you know, the, the purchase price for my freedom is there. And yet, at the same time, though I am free, I'm going to identify as someone who is an eternal bondservant of my master, right? Because I have a master who loves me, who cares for me, who knows what's best for me. So I want to live in his house forever, right? I'm going to be kind of like that servant in Exodus 21. Well, that's what it means to live really a spirit-controlled life. In fact, the, the New Testament says that the Lord is the Spirit. You know, we call the Father Lord, we call Jesus Lord, and we call the Spirit Lord. Lord, of course, is, is, is just the word that is used, Adonai, for the divine name, God, the one true God. The Spirit is God. And so when we want to be under the influence of someone who is good and loving and kind, who has freed us, we want to be under the Holy Spirit, right? We want to be led by the Spirit. We want to be controlled by the Spirit. And when we are under that life of the Spirit, all that God is, all of His characteristics, all of his eternally good and heavenly traits, Paul will go on to say here that all of God's characteristics will be reproduced in the life of the believer, in the life of the Christian. Look what it goes on, he goes on to say in verse 14, Galatians 5.14, For the, all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Paul is basically saying what Jesus said in the Gospels, right? When he was asked, what is the greatest commandment? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself, right? And then he, Jesus gives the golden uh, rule, right? Uh, 
as you want, do unto others as you would want them to do un, un, unto you. Basically, love your neighbor as yourself. And so, Paul, he's saying that this is the controlling command for the Christian, right? In fact, if we do this command, we not only will fulfill what all those other commands pointed towards, which was love, but we'll even supersede them. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, right? You've heard, do not commit adultery, but I say don't even lust after another wife in your heart. You have heard, you know, don't, don't kill. I'll say, you, um, you know, don't even hate your brother in your heart, right? The spirit of love takes us to a whole new level of holiness, right? And the law, the Torah, the first five books of Moses, you know how many Hebrew words there are, and there are 79,847. And Paul says the one word that sums up the 79,847 things that God was trying to move his people toward under the old dispensation, the word that sums it up is one word, it is love, agape. That is the primary thing that God wants written on our hearts. It is love. Not love in the way the world portrays love as an indulgent, selfish, sin-affirming emotion, you know. No, God is after something far better than that, far more holy than that. Biblical love seeks to see people made whole inwardly and outwardly in every way in step with the life of God. Biblical love seeks to see one free and alive in the Creator who made them. Biblical love, it, 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 it sees the Creator of all things dying for, our sins, for the sins of the world. That's how God has demonstrated His love for us. Dying to pay the penalty of our sin. Dying to free people from the power of sin. And it seeks to show that same kind of love. That's how much God loves us, and that's how God wants us to love one another. So all the laws fulfilled in us and even superseded in us when we follow that one command to love one another. Look what Paul continues to say in verse 15. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you, you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, uh, Paul, he goes on to give 17 examples of what it means to walk in the flesh and the lusts of the flesh. And he calls them works of the flesh. And um, he, why does he do this? Well, Paul you know, often in, in his letters, he'll give lists of what the flesh looks like, living by the flesh looks like. And he's not giving an exhaustive list. In fact, at the end of the list, he says, I could go on and list more. He says, and the like. But let me, let me just help you identify what fleshly living lo looks like. So how many here, let's, let's just identify the fleshly life. Verse 19, he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. Like we, we pretty much know, but let me tell you anyway. Which are... Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right. So, 
you know, sin that springs from the flesh has many varied manifestations, right? I don't, you know, my purpose this morning is not to talk about these 17 different works of the flesh, right? They're all ugly, ugly. they're all bondage, and when we read those things, uh, we should say, I don't want my life to be characterized by those things, right? That's the ways of the world, that's the old man, that's what I put off. No, I, I, I want my life to be characterized by something different. And that's what we're going to look at this morning, which is this. The opposite of the works of the flesh, the works of man, is the fruit of the Holy Spirit that dwells with us. Okay? So, it's interesting, you know, Paul, in Galatians, he used the term works often. He talked about the works of the law, how they're inadequate, and even can be a hindrance to one's understanding of being justified freely by God's grace. And here we see works of the flesh, and he, he, he lists out these sinful deeds. But in contrast to the concept of work, Paul develops an understanding of Christian holiness not being a work, but a fruit, right? What is fruit? Well, fruit is not something that, you know, a tree has to work out, right? Something that has to, to work for, rather, it's natural, if the tree is healthy, if it's being watered, if it has sunlight, guess what it's going to produce? It's going to produce fruit. Fruit is something that is organic to its very nature. It's something that is living and it's vital. Right? So Paul says that the, the, the life of the Christian, it is not going to be the work of man's own innate goodness. Rather, it's going to be fruit, a fruit of them abiding in the Spirit of God that dwells inside of them. And as they simply abide in the light of Christ, and as they're washed with the water of the Word, then those characteristics that they're abiding in, that they're being washed by, those characteristics are going to begin to characterize their own life, right? It's interesting, too, that while Paul, when he talks about the works of the flesh, he uses the plural there, works, right? And, and yet when he talks about the life of the Christian, he talks about it in a singular, the fruit. Not the fruits of the Spirit, but the fruit of the Spirit. It's almost as if Paul is stressing that the life of holiness that he's about to describe, it's something that's received as a whole package, right? It is the fruit of the Spirit. If you have the Spirit, this is the fruit, meaning every Christian <laughs> qualifies for everything I'm about to list, right? So you can't say, when we read these nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit, you can't say, yeah, that's nice, but uh, I don't think I have that fruit. I have seven of the fruits, but I don't have these two fruits. No, God is saying, you got all of them, okay? Now, in contrast, like the gifts of the Spirit, he uses the plural, and he lists, he lists nine gifts of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, and he explicitly tells us that not everyone has all nine gifts of the Spirit, right? Most Christians will never operate in all different nine gifts of the Spirit. But every Christian must operate in all nine fruits of the Spirit. Why? Because it is just the nature and the life and the character of God being demonstrated through each and every one of us. So, you know, we might say, okay, I don't have the gift of word of knowledge or I don't have the gift of interpretation. Okay, that, that, that might be true, yeah. But you can't say, you know, I just... I just don't have that fruit of kindness, you know. I'm sorry if I'm not kind. I just don't have. No, you do. Because you have the God who is kind in you, 
and that spirit who abides in you is kind, so you can be kind. And the same is true with all of the fruits we'll get to. Now, look what Jesus said in John 15, 5. He said, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. So dwelling, abiding, remaining in and with Christ will naturally cause us to bear much fruit. Right? The Christian life then becomes not so much a work whereby we're attempting to check up all the boxes of the legalist code, making sure we're doing everything. No, we're just abiding in Christ, in His life, in His Word, and the natural outflow of that will be the fruit of His Spirit, right? Con that our life will be conformed to the image of Jesus. So we should get to such a point where people, you know, they, they see the heavenly fruit in, in our life, and their only response is like the response they had to Peter and John when they healed the man uh, at, at the gate beautiful. And their only response is, these men must have been with Jesus, right? Because their life is different. And the only way a life is different is if someone is, has been with someone who is really heavenly, Jesus. So if we want the heavenly fruit, we got to be with the heavenly man, Jesus. Look what Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 5 verse 8. He says, You once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. For the fruit of the Spirit is in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Here he lists three characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit. Here to the Galatians, we'll see he lists nine. In verse 10 he says, Finding out what is acceptable to the Lord, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works. All right? There is the fruit of the Spirit, and then there is the unfruitful works of darkness. But rather, when we see those unfruitful works of darkness, what do we do? We expose them. We expose them. So what is the fruit of the Spirit that we are supposed to have our life characterized by in contrast with the unfruitful works of darkness? It's this, Galatians 5.22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering. Other translations they just say patience, right? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. So let's break down these nine fruits that characterize our life. Because we're abiding in Christ, <laughs> walking in the Spirit. The first one is love. That, that shouldn't surprise us, right? I mean, he just said what? The greatest command is what? Love. That we should walk in love as God's dear children. And the word love, you know, there's really three different words that are used in the New Testament for love. The word here, love, is that strongest sense of love. It is agape. The agape love. Sometimes it's, it's called the God kind of love. When John, set, John describes the nature of God in 1 John 4.8 and in 1 John 4.16, he says, God is love. God is agape. It's an absolute goodwill and benevolence and delight in the object of love. This is how Paul defines agape love to the Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4, he says this, Love, or agape, suffers long. It's patient, and it's kind, and it does not envy. 
It does not parade itself. It is not puffed up. Does not behave rudely. Does not seek its own. Is not provoked. It thinks no evil. It doesn't rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Verse 8 goes on to say, love or agape, it never fails, right? And then, in fact, at the end of 1 Corinthians 13, Paul, he, he says, now remains faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is what? Love. How do we know faith and hope is pretty great? <laughs> but Paul, he gives a priority. He says there is the weightiest characteristics, there is the weightiest theological virtue, and it's not faith and it's not hope. Those, those are very mighty and very important. But it is love. And it shouldn't surprise us that the first fruit of the Spirit in the life of the believer is the fruit of love. It is the fountainhead of everything else, right? I mean, he says love is kind. Well, what's one of the fruit after love? It's, it's kindness. Love is patient. What's one of the fruit after love? It's patience, right? In the love of God are all these other characteristics. That's why our, 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 our Christian life must be founded on love. Let me read you 1 John 4, 16. It says this, And we have known and believed the love that God has for us. Known and believed it. God is love, and he who abides in love abides in God, and God in him. Our love for one another will increase more and more as we abide in God. The Christian produces the fruit of love because the one who indwells them is love. In fact, Paul says in Romans 5 that God uh, has poured out his love into our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, right? The love of God has been poured into us when the life of God, the Holy Spirit, was poured into us. So the love of God sh should flow through us, right? That should be the first character trait of you and me. Jesus said, they will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. So let's have love characterize everything we do, amen? That people know that we love them. What's the second characteristic? It's joy. You know, I saw some uh, kind of inadvertently, I uh, opened um, uh, my phone and I don't know where I saw it, but I saw some statistic, someone sh uh, shared a, a graph which said how much of the world is on antidepressants. And um, it was interesting, it listed like 20 different countries, I think Korea, it was like 10 out of a thousand. And then I get down to America and it's the highest of any nation in the world. It's like 110 out of 1,000, like 11% of Americans are on antidepressants. And it just shows you how, how depressing the world is, right? How depressed the world is. And I'm not here, you know, just to critique antidepressants in general. I'm just here to say that there is a solution. And the solution is, right, that we have the joy of the Lord. In fact, Jesus says that we have his very joy inside of us. This is what he says in John 15, 11. He says, These things I have spoken to you, his great speech, that I am the vine and you are the branches. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Right? I don't just want you to have a little joy. 
I want you to have the fullness of joy. Joy inexpressible and full of glory, as Peter puts it. Because he is the vine, and because we are attached to his life as the branches, he is the very source of our joy. My joy is in you. We have the joy of Jesus, the eternal joy of God. <laughs> we have the joy of the Lord. That's what Nehemiah says. Nehemiah 8.10 says this, Do not sorrow, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Our joy is God's joy. It is an overflow of the spirit of joy that rests in our hearts. And it brings life and strength and health to our bones. It's a joy that is always there through times of difficulty and times of peace. The joy of the Lord always remains. In fact, when Nehemiah was writing that, he was speaking to a people who were ravaged by war, who were constantly reminded about the depressing facts of life. And yet, what does he say to a people who are surrounded by a depressing world? He says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. He said, God still has good plans for you, right? So I want to raise your expectations. I want to raise your hope. I want you to know that the God of joy is with you. You don't have to be depressed by all the, the headlines of the world, right? <laughs> you pick up a phone, you turn on the TV, and you could get depressed really quick, right? But the joy of the Lord is your strength. We don't need to live by the headlines of the world. The third thing he says is this, is peace. You have love, you have joy, you have peace. That's the word in Hebrew, right? We're familiar with shalom. It's not just peace in, in the sense of no turmoil, but it's a peace in the sense of God's wholeness. There's nothing missing. There's nothing broken. God has bring, brought a completeness about to your life. You have the utter peace of God. And in fact, just like we have the love of God inside of us, just like we have the joy of Jesus inside of us, guess whose peace we have? Jesus' peace as well. That same night, you know, right before he said, my joy remain in you, he says, I've given you my peace. John 14, 27. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Whose peace do you have? Jesus. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. So, you know, peace, this kind of peace, Jesus' kind of peace, is, a, is the very opposite of, of a lot of the works of the flesh that Paul listed, right? Things like contentions and jealousies and outbursts of wrath and dissensions and divisions, right? Jesus' peace is, is the opposite of that. Jesus' peace is all about reconciliation, right? It's about bringing an order. It's about there being a well-being. No, no need for inner turmoil, even though outward circumstances may be rough, right? It's a peace in the middle of the storm. What was Jesus doing when the great windstorm arose on the Sea of Galilee and water was being beat into the boat and all the disciples are crying out, we're going to die. It says, but Jesus was in the stern asleep on a pillow. <laughs> That's the kind of peace that you and I have, right? That we can be like Jesus in the middle of the storm because we have his peace and we can take a nap, right? We can be at rest. 
we can be at rest on a pillow, right? Heavenly peace. You know, when I think of peace, I think of, uh, I think of like a peaceful family home. You know, one thing I, I like about my parents' house is that people feel at peace when they enter there. You know, my mom does a great job at always keeping everything clean. It always smells good. It's always inviting. It's a nice atmosphere. One thing my, my mom uh, wrote over the archway you enter when you go into the kitchen is peace to all who enter here, right? And you just go in, and it's like, oh, I can be at rest. You know, I was a little stressed coming in here. But I can just sit down, and I can be at rest. And, and that's how the Father wants us to be, right? He wants us to know that we are in the Father's house. I mean, especially when we come to church, what, what should there be? There should be a rest. There should be a peace. There should be a relaxation, right? But that should be how we should be even throughout the week, right? Jesus said, um, in my Father's house are many rooms, and um, I'm going to make a place for you there. You know what Jesus said in John chapter 2? He said, I am my Father's house. You know, one way Jesus makes a place for us in the Father's house is what he did right after he said, I'm going to go and make a place for you. He went to the cross. What did he do? He died. Why? So that we could be united to him. We have a place in the Father's house. We have a place in Jesus Christ. And you and I tell you, when you find yourself with Christ and you say, I have been crucified with Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. I tell you what, there's a, there's a position of peace. I've got a place in Jesus Christ. I'm no longer fearful or, you know, in turmoil about anything. What's the third? We got love, we got joy, we got peace, we got patience. You know, God is also patient. Just like God is love, God is joy, God is peace, God is patient. What does 2 Peter 3, 9 say? The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Again, this fruit is an aspect of the life of God that dwells inside of us. And here, patience is tied to hope. One reason we can be patient is because we are people who have a hope, we have a confident assurance that God works things together for good, even for those, you know, who ultimately we, we don't necessarily want to be patient with. Well, God is patient with everyone. We need to be patient with people too, right? <laughs> we could be like the father of, of, of the man, uh, the parable, in the parable of, of the lost sons, where he had his younger boy, remember, he, his younger boy counted him as dead. Give me my inheritance, dad. He gives him his inheritance. He goes away and he wastes it all on prodigal living, right? Spends it on prostitutes and everything else. But what is the father doing? He's patient. It says that the father was, was looking for the son's return every day. He's probably praying for the son's return, right? And what happens when the son finally repents? And he says, you know what, maybe my father... I, I'm, I'm feeding the pigs in this pig side, but maybe I know my father's servants have it better than I have, so maybe my father will hire me as a servant. What does he do? It says that he began to go back, and the moment 
that the father saw his son cross the horizon. He goes out and he runs towards his son, right? And it says that he lavishes him with kisses, that he gives him one of his best robes and his rings and his sandals, and he says, kill the fatted calf, let's go home and let's celebrate, right? He was patient with his son who wanted to indulge the flesh. And after the son indulged the flesh and realized its fruit was nothing but destruction, the father had open arms for him. He was patient. We need to be patient even with those who are like the prodigal, right? We need to have the heart of the father. We need to have the heart of God for people. What's uh, another, what's the fifth fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. Again, just as God is love, joy, peace, and patience, and patient. God is kind. This is what Jesus said about God in Luke 6.35. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. Why? For He, God, the Father, is kind. To who? To the people who deserve to be kind to? (laughs) No, He's kind to the unthankful and evil. Aren't you glad we have a God like that? So our kind interactions should not just be those with people we like, right? We should obviously be good at being kind with our people we like and do good to us. But we have a higher calling. We have a calling to be kind like God is kind. And that means we're called to be kind even to the unthankful and to the evil, right? God is no miser. Neither should we be in the spread of our kindness. Proverbs 15.1 says this, A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Right? You know how one of the main ways we're kind? Is we got to watch over our words, right? It's like James chapter 3 says. Your tongue has to be put under control, right? You might want to say something to someone, but you got to put it in check and say, Lord, help me say this in a way that is kind. Right? Help me reframe my words in a way that is kind. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness. How many know that's a character quality of God, right? God innately is good. In fact, our word God is developed off of that word good in the English language. It, it, that's how it developed. That's the word God. It comes from good. And why are we called to have the fruit of goodness? Because God is the fountain of goodness inside of us. You know, throughout the Psalms, for instance, one of the the declarations that is repeated over and over and over again is that Yahweh is good, right? The Lord is good, and His mercy, His hesed, His loving kindness, His grace endures forever, right? His goodness means that He will be gracious, If we have the fruit of goodness in our life, what does that mean we're going to be? We're going to be gracious to people, right? It's another aspect of kindness, that we're not just kind, but we're going to be overflowing with kindness to now, to where it's this gracious goodness where in our interactions with people, right? (laughs) This is what Jesus said in Mark 10, 17. He's speaking to... um, 
or let's read. Now as he was going out on the road, one came running and knelt before him and, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one that is God. Now, he's testing him here because he knows he's God. He's affirmed that he's God multiple times, right? So he's saying, are you indeed affirming that I am God? All right, that's what Jesus is getting at. Don't, don't think like some people think, oh, Jesus says he's not God. No, that's the exact opposite of what he's saying here. And only God is good. That's what Jesus affirms. Only God is good. That's why I am good, because I am God. And God is good at all times. He is the fountain of goodness. And that is why goodness is a fruit of the Spirit rather than a work of our own effort. As God's masterpiece, right, we have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, right? We don't do good works to get in favor with God, but our good works are an outflow of who we are created in Christ Jesus to be. We're saved by grace in order to do good works for others, okay? We have the gracious goodness of God poured in, out in our life so we can pour out that gracious goodness into the lives of others. Colossians 1.10 says this, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing Him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. We can increase in good works <laughs> as we're filled with the good God. What's the seventh fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, or kindness, goodness, faithfulness. Now this word faithfulness, it also can just be translated faith. Faithfulness, faith, is a fruit of the Spirit in our life. This is, uh, again, it, the faithfulness is a character quality of God. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3 says this, The Lord is what? Faithful. Great is your faithfulness, right? As, as the book of Lamentations says, when it's looking at all the world falling apart around him, great is his faithfulness. Great is his faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies we see. The Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. So guess what? You know how we're going to be faithful? How we're going to be faithful to the Lord, how we're going to be faithful in our relations with others, how we're going to be full of faith even? is I'm going to live by the, the, the fruit of that faithfulness of God inside of me, of that faith of God inside me. That's why I, I, I mentioned Galatians 2.20 where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live, he goes on to say, a lot of translations say, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me. But it's better translated, I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loves me and gave himself for me. Or the, the King James even translates it like this. I live by the faith of God who loves me and gave himself for me. How are we going to live a life of love to one another? Well, we're living by the faith of God. We're living by the faithfulness of God. We're living by the life of Jesus Christ inside of us. That's how we can be faithful people. Not through our own works and through our own effort, but through the nature of God that is abiding inside of us. It will be a fruit of the Spirit. What's the eighth characteristic? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. You know, that's another character quality of God. What did Jesus say? Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon or take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am what? 
gentle. Aren't you glad Jesus is gentle? I am gentle. The most powerful person in all existence is gentle. And lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus said this, he said, A bruised reed I will not break. A snuffering wick I will not snuff out. Or a smoldering wick I will not snuff out, right? So because God is gentle, you and I can be gentle. 2 Timothy 2.23 says this, But avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife, and a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. The last character quality is this, self-control, fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Again, self-control is just a character quality of God. Psalm 86.15 says this, But you, Lord, are a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Aren't you glad the Lord is slow to anger? He has perfect self-control, obviously. But it's good to know that. He knows when and how to exhibit any of his passion. We, too, are to have the self-control of the Lord. We're to be slow to anger, right? We're to be slow to wrath. We're not to be people who are constantly reacting to everything, right? But we need to have control of those outbursts of wrath that are works of the flesh. James 1.19 says this, So then, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak. Some of us need to hear that, right? We need to be slow to speak. <laughs> and we need to be slow to wrath. We need to be slow to get angry. We need to say, well, wait a second. I'm not going to allow these fleshly, worldly, ungodly passions control me. I'm going to allow the character qualities of God to be the controlling factor over my life. Amen? So that's who we are. All of the fruit of the spirits are contained in who God is. And when we have His life abiding inside of us, guess what? We're going to see those fruit produced in us. So we're going to go ahead and take communion. Anyone here not receive a communion uh, element, go ahead and raise up your hand. We'll make sure to get one into your hand here. And you're with us and you believe on the Lord. You can partake of the meal. We have everything we need for life and for godliness in, in Jesus Christ. When Jesus is declaring who He is to us throughout the Gospel of John, He gives seven I Am statements. The first I am statement is, I am the living bread come down from heaven. It's the bread. The last I am statement, and we read it this morning, I am the true vine. My father is the vine, uh, vine dresser. You are the branches. I'm the vine and you are the branches. When we partake of the, the bread, the first I am, we take of the cup, the last I am, we're reminded that everything Jesus is resides inside of us, right? So all of the character qualities of God, all of the character qualities of Christ, all the character qualities of the Spirit reside in us, and we just need to continue to wash ourselves with the water of the Word. And when we do that, we will see those character qualities uh, have an outflow through us. Amen?